Hello, and welcome to this special edition of Cinetopia, an episode which is a collaboration brought to you by Take One Magazine. My name is Jim Ross, Managing Editor of Take One Magazine and a regular member of the Cinetopia podcast crew. This is our second episode, rounding up some of the films at the 2019 Edinburgh International Film Festival, and I am again joined by some of the other writers from Take One. We'll be back with our regular show and our regular crew in July on EHFM, but on this occasion I was joined by Serena Scatini, Mark Nelson, Amber Heath, Joshua Reagan, and, dialing in from London, Elle Haywood. In this episode, we review experimental film Bait, Swedish sci-fi Anyara, acclaimed British drama The Souvenir, and high-concept rom-com Love Type D. We did have some technical difficulties when Elle first called in to join us, but we fixed them later on in the Bait review. We'll begin this episode, though, with Love Type D. Frankie? Yes? I'm Wilbur Asquith Lacey, Thomas's brother. I didn't know Thomas had a brother. I just came to give you a message from Thomas. He's a bit tied up, so he can't make it to lunch. And, um, he's not really looking for a relationship right now. Don't you think it's strange that every time we like a man, he rejects us? I think there's a more sinister reason why John the Intern just blanked you. Researchers at the Oxford Institute of Genetics have discovered a gene which affects your love life. People with the D-type gene will suffer chronic failure and rejection, according to scientists. People can be split into two categories. Dumpers, well, they end all their relationships. And dumpies, well, they always get dumped. Okay, so the next one, uh, quite a departure from some of the other films that we've uh, spoken about, is Love Type D, which is a first feature film from Sasha Collington. Uh, And basically it is a romantic comedy with a high concept. Uh, Amber, why don't you tell us a little bit about that high concept? What is it? Right, so this film, it starts off like in the Bridget Jones' style of romantic comedy. This poor woman gets broken up by her boyfriend's little brother. (laughs) It's um, like, they do a very good establishing scene at the beginning and this child actor, uh, his name is uh, Roy Stroud, he is excellent. He's a really good child actor. Um, And he's playing Wilbur who is the 12 year old brother of uh, the main character, Frankie's boyfriend, Thomas, who is broken up with her via her, his brother. <laughs> um, and this just sets off the, uh, I, the sort of love, like, unlucky in love figure of Frankie. Um, and then uh, it gets into some odd uh, pseudoscientific... Um, premise where she thinks she has this gene that literally means that she will always be dumped and will never find love in her entire life, which she gets off of the twelve-year-old brother. <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah the twelve-year-old brother is quite the quite the scientist in this film, I have to say. So I I, I had a lot of fun with this. Um, but basically, you're right. It, it starts with that very funny scene of the the child actor, uh, so Wilbur uh, is the, the the name of the character, breaking up with her in the restaurant on behalf of his brother, which is a pretty ridiculous uh, scenario. And I think it was actually the it was actually the subject of Sasha Collington's short film that she did before this, uh, which helped her to kind of get the the funding for this. 
Josh, how did you find the the premise and the comedy that kind of... I found, I found the premise a very interesting premise. And I thought they were going to run further with it. I thought they were going to run with it to the end, but I'm kind of happy that they didn't because it didn't do the annoying thing which romantic comedies do and say, oh, that's fine. All they did was fine. Although having said that, I do believe the main character does some horrible things in order to oh, yeah, get absolutely. the people she loves. And I almost feel like the payoff doesn't quite come. I don't know, maybe that's I the mean, cynical I mean, person that wants everyone to suffer inside me, you know? As, as in comeuppance for her. Yeah, comeuppance for her. I mean, I think the important thing to recognise is that while it starts off as romantic comedy and it looks like romantic comedy, I think the point where they introduce the ghost tells you that it's not really a romantic comedy. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, and I, I'm not going to... Like, one thing when we're doing these reviews, I'm not going to worry too much about spoilers, and this happens pretty early on anyway. Basically, what what happens is, um, so she finds out she has this gene, but by kind of reversing the actions that activated it, she can deactivate it, right? This is basically the premise. So they go on this, this kind of journey to, to do so, and encounters one problem in that one of her exes, who she needs to, you know, kind of find and reintroduce herself to, is dead. <laughs> Um, you know, which is a bit of an impediment to that. So it goes into some very weird territory for a while. And I'm not going to lie, that bit, it did make me kind of go, okay, uh, I'm just going to go with this. And, you know, it moves on. And it's, it's light enough and it's funny enough. And I, I was chuckling a lot. Um, so it had me laughing enough to kind of just keep me going with it, I think. Um, I think it's quite well written in the sense that there's, there's a couple of different kinds of humour in there. I mean, there's kind of situational ridiculousness, but then some of the exes that she reconnects with, they're just such pompous idiots. And it, it, it's really quite well written because it's then based around kind of, you know, poking fun at their pomposity, whereas other stuff is situational, other stuff is a little bit farcical almost and like slapstick. So I think some people could find it a little bit all over the place, if I'm being honest, but for me it worked and it had me laughing enough to uh, forgive maybe some of its minor flaws. I feel the whole kind of all over the place aspect of it was the most interesting part of it, and especially when you brought up that the one of the exes is dead and they do a scene, I think it's stop motion, I'm assuming it's stop motion, um, with her communicating with him, I thought that was fantastically well done. And I thought that was, that was really interesting and really fun to see and it was just hilarious. Yeah, it, it, it very much, it, it's one of those strange ones in that you, you feel at every point it's going to go for a romantic comedy cliche. Like it's on, it, it's on the, pre the precipice of just wholeheartedly embracing it and just going with it. And then it just does something just to knock it away from that a little bit. And I, I find that quite interesting because it's clearly trying to get people on board with the fact that it's a romantic comedy, but it's still trying to play with the, the tropes a little bit. Another interesting thing is that for a romantic comedy, we're not introduced to the secondary love interest. So her boyfriend breaks up with her at the beginning of the film. And in a traditional romantic comedy, either she gets back with him at the end or she finds someone better. And there's a point where you think that's going to happen, um, that she finds someone else that's better. And then it completely turns it on its head again. It goes completely in the opposite direction. And it just goes further into pseudoscience, really. I mean, they really... Yeah, it, 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 it does go for it. Like when I was speaking to the, the director, she's clearly used as, a, as an inspiration some of these, um, you know, romantic comedies that have had 
you know, what we call high concepts before. So I think Groundhog Day was a reference point, Big was a reference point. And you get that, but it has gone even a little bit further back in time and it's not really, it, it's, the thing that I found interesting about it was from the start, it's framed as a kind of journey of self-improvement. Um, so he kind of plays with the, the we need to, I need to win him back like idea which is and even so that common. is completely turned on its head yeah, exactly like yeah. she just gets worse over the film she yeah, doesn't you, you expect it to be kind of like Bridget Jones like yes and it isn't and that's what's the most exciting thing about it yeah and I think a lot of that is uh, in the, the performance of uh, Maeve Dermody I think is the, uh, the actor's name who is playing Frankie because she needs to tread that line between like the, you know she's likeable we're rooting for her for pretty much most of the film but she can't be perfect because then otherwise you know why would she be <laughs> you, you know why would she be dealing with yes. the kind of constant rejection if she was and her perfect. fatal flaw is her tendency to stalk people yes she is yes. definitely not perfect <laughs> yeah uh, no, including no, the 12 year old kid yeah the, yeah the, 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 yeah, the, the, the kid sees some stuff in this film, I have to say. Um, but no, I think it, it's um, it's a very light film, but I think it's got an interesting premise. Um, I think it's definitely worth checking out. But it's a it's a fun film. I had a lot of I had a lot of enjoyment out of this, um, and I think people should definitely check out. I feel as though I want to not not live my whole life in this very privileged um, part of the world I come from. I want to be really aware about what's going on around me. Sorry, sorry. We can all be sincere, but um, what's it all for? So I'm trying to work out where you two tessellate here. How, what, why, when. Can you lend me a couple of quid? Yeah, sure. Not me. Can I borrow some money, please? More money? Oh. You're too nice. You need to properly get aggressive. Don't lie, Anthony. If you don't want to know, I do then want to don't know. ask. Stop torturing yourself. I'm not. Stop inviting me to torture you. Okay, so next up is The Souvenir, uh, directed by Joanna Hogg. And I think this one debuted at Sundance in February, it was uh, January rather, and then it was down at Sundance London after that. So I think, uh, Mark, I'll go to you to begin with, just to tell us a little bit about the, the setup of the film. So um, this is a film directed by Joanna Hogg. She's, this is her fourth feature. She directed Unrelated and Archipelago. Uh, her most recent film was Exhibition in 2013. I love a couple of her films. I would say Unrelated and uh, Archipelago are, are great. They're sort of examinations of uh, class privilege and alienated people, um, but she's very sympathetic to them, even when they're being reprehensible arseholes, and that's something which the souvenir gets into as well. It's the story of Julie, who's a young filmmaker. Um, she is at film school. She lives in Knightbridge in London. She is this lovely to the two-floor apartment, which you don't think anyone of such a young age should be living in, but there we go. She, every time that she wants, she can phone Mama and get some money you know, sent to her. Um, and we, we, we will be coming back to that. And we will be coming back to Mama, of course. Um, but her, her mother, played by Tilda Swinton, who is her actual mother, of course. Um, she's at film school, and she has a sort of... She has a passionate idea but she doesn't know how to express what the idea is. 
So every time, and this happens in other films, where somebody tries to talk about what they're passionate about, they stumble. And the language in Hogg's films is extraordinary. These people are just absolutely bursting with passion and excitement about their lives, but have no means to express it. So there's a refrain, there's a moment where Anthony, who we'll talk about in a second, uh, Anthony and her are talking about her application for funding for a, a film, and she keeps on saying, you know, it would be, you, you know, I find that interesting. And she had, there's no substance to what she's saying at the moment because she is, she's young. Because <laughs> I, I'm, keeping, I'm keeping my tongue firmly, <laughs> firmly clasped between my teeth right now. No, no longer, I promise you. Um, she's not yet figured out how to express what's within her, but something is within her and it's about to come out. And that's what the film is, is this thing gradually being revealed, which sort of conflicts with something else in the film, which is the relationship with, she has with Anthony, who's this older man. He is an employee of the foreign office. He's like a mixture between Trevor Howard in Brief Encounter and George Sanders in Journey to Italy. He is just, he's full of these remarkable intonations. He's also like a, an arsehole, as said prior to this, you know. He's a bit of a toxic dude, but she's really interested in him, and this is a film about her. And she finds there to be enough in their interactions so that she thinks a relationship would be worthwhile, and she gradually falls into one with, with him. Yeah, and that, that, that's basically, I think, the, the, the backbone of the film is this, um, this relationship between those two characters. Um, and the, I mean, very obviously toxic nature of it, I think, and then what effect this is having on her artistic expression, you know, she's a budding uh, young director. Now, before I um, take my muzzle off and get stuck into this, because I, I think it's safe. To, I think you could probably guess from my <laughs> oblique tone, I'm, 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 I'm not sold on, on, on this film at all. But I'm going to come to Serena first and just say, how did you find um, that central relationship, and in particular, uh, the, the, the female filmmaker character? How do you think it dealt with her story? Has it hit the mark that it was clearly going for in Mark's description? Um, well, I mean, to be honest, I guess my first reaction to the film was that uh, this depiction of a female artist is totally wrong. On so many different levels, I was really... I couldn't believe that, especially because I felt kind of betrayed because the director herself is a woman, but then I get also that it's a kind of semi-autobiographical story. So, I mean, uh, it must be, it obviously be super uh, personal to her. So uh, there's this kind of a level of intimacy and stuff. But um, at the same time, and I feel maybe my, um, uh, my problem with the film is that uh, when I was younger, I used to be like less self-confident I mean, I'm not that much now, but I used to be like super much influenced by older men or maybe because I admire them and stuff. So um, I totally get the fact that you, as a woman in a kind of environment and a man world kind of, where uh, you don't have these role models, women, female role models, the only thing you can do is being influenced by men and be uh, Top off by them, but at the same time, I, uh, I was expecting something different from the film. I mean, especially I wasn't really taken by the uh, relationship described and depicted in the film because obviously it's a toxic relationship at its 
best, but there are so many things that are wrong and I feel like the film didn't let it pass that the relationship was wrong and she felt like she was kind of drowning in this kind of relationship without, without uh, being in command at all. And yeah, that could be true because she has naive young female filmmaker and stuff, but at the same time she could have a, like a grasp at the situation she was in, but she didn't. And I pretty much agree with that. I think I, I've got some slight differences in that. I thought the performances were great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I think that re regardless of anything uh, about how it was being depicted or the, the story and themes that it's uh, is going for, the central performances are all uniformly fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, it is extremely well done. I think Joanna Hogg has done a very good job of directing it as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's plenty of. Um, shots and framing and the way that she um, looks at her characters and you know where she placing her blocking and mm -hmm. so forth that really adds to what yeah. they're trying to get across in that scene. Where my problem comes in is really more with the script and what the film is going for. Mm -hmm. So the, the central toxic relationship, I kind of have problems with how it's presented. Um, you know, so at one point, um, Anthony, uh, the older the older man she is with, um, is critiquing her uh, film school application, for instance. And you don't see what her reaction is. Mm -hmm. It very much cuts away from it. And there's a lot of, you know, proselytizing basically on his part, but then we don't really get anywhere with what her reaction is to it. On top of that, there are certain, now, Mark, you alluded to it in the intro in terms of where, um, what is what's the name of the character again? The 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 female filmmaker, Julie. That's it. So the, the, there's Julie lives in a flat in Knightsbridge, which is in. I mean, I would say impossibly nice, but I suppose it's not really because there are people who live like that, right? And it kind of tries to engage with the idea of this kind of absurd level of privilege she seems mm -hmm. to be operating with, right? So there's. One part where she's talking to one of the tutors at the film school who's asking her, you know, have you considered budget? Oh, I suppose you don't need to worry about budget in Knightsbridge. So it does engage with that. And then there's another one where she's pitching this um, feature film she wants to make uh, about Sunderland uh, and, you know, the Northeast. And you know, this, it's this allegorical thing. And she describes that she wants to get out of her, her bubble. Yeah. Right? The film then, in, in my opinion at least, then goes absolutely nowhere with that. It, it pays the smallest amount of attention to it, almost as if it's trying to sort of like say, right, okay, we're, we're engaging with it, we do realise this, mm -hmm. and in my opinion, it doesn't really do anything with it. So there's that part of it, there's the relationship, and it doesn't, to me, really deal with it in any substantive way, because it then decides to focus more on kind of the artistic, you know, mysteries that this then gives it gives to, you know, what, how should she express herself? How would you go about it? Is this the right way to do it? Rather than really engaging with any of the rest of it. In some ways, if it had ignored it completely, I'd actually probably have less of a problem with it, but it's because it acknowledges it and then doesn't do anything with it at all, in my opinion. Okay, there's, a, there's so much to disagree <laughs> with. Yeah, I'll, I'll try, I'll try, I'll try. So, with 
with regards to, I think two of the complaints are sort of interlocked, which is mm-hmm. Serena's complaint about um, her as a woman filmmaker. And I think this has so much to do with exactly that bubble that we're talking about. Because she's been so coddled all of her life that she gets the moment of freedom now to do what it is that she wants to do, mm-hmm. and yet doesn't, just can't express herself. Right? And I think that has something to do with the way in which when she meets Anthony and gets into the relationship with Anthony, she actually falls deeper into the bubble. And it's small signs that, that show this up. It's the fact that, well, no, no, they're not small. Actually, they're wrong. They're glaring. <laughs> they're, um, there's a moment where they go back into the bedroom. The first time that they, the first couple of times that they sleep over, it's a plain bed. Later on, it's a throne. It's like a bed that's adapted into a throne. The furnishings have changed. There's just a chandelier in the house now. He inveigles his way into her life so subtly, but so gradually, and change. And there's these constantly interspersed moments of her, you know, going to Venice, and that comes back as a refrain. And there, there are just so many moments with Anthony. I, I like that we uh, agree on the performances because I think we do need to talk about Honorsman and Byrne here. That there's just details, the moments where someone's talking about something to do with art, and she nods aggressively. And as a, you know, you know, art, and somebody who's interested in you know, literature, and poetry, and film, or whatever, like you know, people who do that. You know, yeah. people who are like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Have you seen the thing? Oh no, no, I no, like, no yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. Like that's that's that is that's absolutely drawn from experience and articulated in a way I find really, I find really moving. I was ruined by the end of this movie. I think the, uh, you know, I found it very very emotional. Um, and it gets to something about what we're talking about. Anthony, we should say also, it's a great performance by Tom Burke. He has these weird intonations mm-hmm. and. He's just, he has a remarkable presence, but he's also, he is an arsehole and he is toxic and he is, is he preying on her? I don't know. He has certainly got some influence on her, but he's paying attention to her in a way which she obviously loves. She's obviously just hugely into the fact that this person's paying attention to her. Um, and I think I also wanted to say something about the structure, which was your, your complaint about the way in which she doesn't respond to that bit where he tries to critique her application is that these moments are you know, Hogg does not go in for establishing shots she just goes right into a scene with a composition usually distance, occasionally close ups here which is a departure but the moments where she is just barreling into a scene and you need to work out what the context is these have like the primacy of a memory and it's as though these are the memories that are important to her when she looks over this period so of course it's fragmented, of course there are omissions of course there are things which are sort of interpolated and you don't quite know why but the fact that she removes herself from that moment or Hogg removes Julie from that moment to be more accurate you know, tells you what's important about that scene to Hogg and to Julie um, I, th- I think you, you've maybe I, th- I have to concede I think you've hit on something there <laughs> no 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 because I, I, the, the thing that I, I, I find myself I'm very conflicted about this film because I want to like this film, yeah. right? I can tell it's a very considered film. It's extremely well made. It's extremely well acted. It has really everything that I should like in a film. It's more just it felt like it was trying to say something which was really not necessarily that complex in my view, but it's trying to deliver it with such overblown import and with a disregard for everything which is then the trappings of the story, right? So, for instance, we've spoken about the fact that 
you know, she can't express herself and mm -hmm. the Anthony character, as you put it, kind of like, you know, worms his way in effectively, right? And in a way, you could think of that as kind of a metaphor for her own privilege, right? Like, she can't get away from it and that's how she can't ex express herself. And there's a lot of scenes about, um, you know, her tutors saying, how would you take that experience, that being the, the, the life of this boy in Sunderland that she wants to tell, and relate it to your own one? And then over the course of the film, it becomes quite apparent that really she can't, quite frankly. But then, are we not falling back on the old cliche of the best art comes from suffering? It's only when you suffer that you can produce the best art. But the way that, but the way that it's then presented in the film is through this toxic relationship. And ultimately, I mean, really, ultimately, everyone is fine. And well, 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 okay, not everybody. No, I mean, there's one obvious exception to that. But the point I make is, it, it, to me, it feels like it's a very well-appointed version of something that we've heard and seen in films so many times. And I suppose, to me, because it didn't necessarily feel like a particularly new message to me, then all the various trappings of everything else then annoyed me. Now that's maybe my own shortcoming, I'm fully willing to accept that, but I think to not see that that was, it's almost, I mean it's a bit meta in the sense that really, you know, like the encroachment of her privilege then prevents her telling the story and to me it's like the privilege that, you know, surrounds the film then kind of removed me from the story. But it's just the way that it kind of engaged with it just in the slightest way and then doesn't thereafter, and then moves on to its bigger concerns. That, that's what, for me, sat a little oddly. But I don't think she does just suffer. Like, she lives. And that's the point of this, I think, is that she has this experience, which you can say it's a coming-of-age experience, you can go that way if you want, but there's something to this where this is the first major love that she has in her life, mm -hmm. and it's a major fuel for the art, too. Um, and it's not that you need... But we can't actually see his love fueling at heart. Oh, I think you can in the final... I really want to talk about the final two shots, but I think we'll probably leave Well, it's the final two shots, but before that you have like one hour and a half of film mm -hmm. where you just experience this relationship where it doesn't make any sense. And you're also experiencing some other scene with women sitting at a table and there are only men talking and they're basically uh, shut down by everyone else and they're not saying anything at all. And then okay. when you... With the parents, well, and then there's the other scene with the, the two guys at their flat in Icebridge. And then it's always, you know, the, the same scene repeating over and over and over again. And in the end, the film in itself is the same stuff. The fact that this, this young female director, obviously, uh, she, 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 she stumbled because, I mean, she stumbled in her words because she's not sure, and that's perfectly fine. But in the end, I, I wanted to see something different. I wanted to see a different story because, I mean, I really don't mind if it's like from an upper class kind of background because just imagine, that, just imagine the same film for, with a male protagonist. It would have been completely different. It wouldn't be maybe an arrogant kind of male uh, young filmmaker with this amazing background, kind of a dandy. It would have been maybe Anthony himself, the main character. And then it could have been like, a, it could have had like a relationship with another woman, but that would have been uh, maybe really fueling her, his heart. And, and it's not what happens in the film. So I was really 
Oh, I, dis- I disagree on the moment where because I think you're right about the moment of the flat. I don't think any of them. I, I think Julie like laughs and maybe goes them on to talk some more, but I don't think she really like engages in the conversation. But the moment where they're talking in the house with the, mm. the mother and the father, what really interests me in that scene is again the way we talked about earlier, where um, she's incredibly sympathetic to these people who would be very easy just to laugh off and go, well, you know, a bad egg done. Mm. And it's not that simple. People aren't that simple. And Tilda Swinton, who is, you know, the upper class mother, you know, she's wearing tweeds, she's, you mm. know, has all these things. She has a great <laughs> pair of dogs that wander around the carpet, you know, blah, blah. But the Tilda Swinton character expresses a completely diverging political opinion from her husband. Yeah, that shocks true. him, shocks him to hear that, um, you know, she's got, she's got some nuanced opinion about the situation in Northern Ireland. It absolutely shocks him that, it shocks him to think that her that his wife thinks for herself and that's that's really interesting to me and it feeds into what i find fascinating about antony which is yeah for obvious reasons the guy is the guy has non-desirable qualities obviously but you know you don't see red flags in the moment all the time or if you do you're looking at them through the perspective of somebody you know falling into love for the first time and you don't you know you're not interrogating that closely because you're too happy yeah, I mean, the, the, what I would say is, despite my negative reaction to, let's say, the story, because as we as we discussed, I think it's a very well made film. I think the performance is great. It's got a lot going for it. Like, it is a film that's worth seeing. Despite my negative reaction to it, and and Serena's also, I would encourage people to see it. Um, you know, just purely because I think your your own reaction to it. And I think as we've kind of amply demonstrated here, there is a lot of discussion to be had around this film. It is an interesting film. Um, It's it's going to be a discourse film, I imagine. Yes, yes. Yeah, I I think the majority of people, I mean, majority of critics maybe will watch this film in Berlin and somewhere else. Pretty much all of them agree that it's a wonderful film, it's an amazing film. And so, I mean, my expectations, my I was very hyped towards this film. And then, yeah, I mean, I really came in the screen ready to love it and then yeah it didn't happen and it made me sad of course yeah i mean admitted that because this is why i think people should go see it right because it is a very well-made film and i think there are a lot of people i mean we've got one right here with mark who who will get a lot out of it and i i got stuff out of it myself it's more just maybe part of my reaction as well is i was sitting in the screening after and you know the the people around me. I didn't know them, but the, you know they clearly knew each other, and they were saying, "Oh yes, no, it's wonderful. Oh, I loved it. It's okay." And I was sitting there thinking, "Did I just watch the same film as everybody else?" So then, when I go on Twitter afterwards and find out that Serena didn't like it, I kind of wanted to I, I kind of wanted to high five you through the internet. So I, it is definitely worth seeing. I, I would, despite my reaction, I would not discourage anybody from seeing it. Can I also can I also just say something about like. I really want to talk about the final two shots in this because they are astounding. There's something in the way that I've picked up on the aspect ratio very, very quickly and not to be like fascistic about these like details, but it's a, it's almost widescreen. Mm. And the fact of being so young but on the cusp of adulthood, there's like an almostness to this movie. And this the penultimate shot is her finally having an idea about uh, a film that she wants to film for her thesis at the, at the film school. And interestingly, it looks very much like a shot in the Varda film, which, you know, will maybe come to another point. Um, it's a moment that shot up while they're filming, the crew are filming, and Julie is off 
towards the right of the screen. The, uh, there's an actress sitting on a stool or a seat sort of towards the left. And that's it for the bit that's a lighting rig. Well, it's lit like a Caravaggio painting. And then slowly but surely, there's a camera on a dolly just moving gradually towards the actress sitting on the stool at the same time as the camera is dollying towards Julie. And eventually she gives that look into the camera. Yeah. It's like a portrait of the artist as a young woman. She's, fi- she's, mm. she's finally got it. And then the final shot, which or maybe I won't talk about it because it's like, but it's, it's like the searchers. It's, it's the ultimate mic drop. It's great, yeah. I think. No, I mean, I think, and, and talking about the final two scenes, I don't think, you, you, this is not the sort of film that's really, you Spoiling. spoil, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, I think that's, again, that's one of the reasons people should, should see it. It's, it's an interesting film. I think it's worth seeing, and it will be interesting as much as anything else to see what other people's reactions to it are. Um, it does have a UK release date. It comes out right at the end of August, and I believe it's also with Curzon. So those of you who are not near a art house cinema will still be able to see it because you'll be able to see it on Curzon Home Cinema. So diverging reactions, but a unanimous check it out. You've been clamped. I think so. Yeah. Who done that? Who do you think? You own the bloody street. You can't just park there all day. It's fine you picking stuff up and dropping stuff I work off. in the arbour. I'm a bloody fisherman. Are you? Where's your boat? See you on the beach. I'm telling Mum you're hanging around with him. You live in this community. Oh, the community. Okay, so the next film we've got is a uh, very unique film. I think it's probably the most unique of the ones that we are, we are speaking about on these podcasts. And that is Bait, directed by Mark Jenkin. So uh, I've seen it, Mark has seen it, and also joining us is uh, our associate editor, Elle Haywood, from London, who saw the film in Berlin. Hey, guys. So Bait is, as um, Jim said, is exceptionally unique in terms of its context and also the fact that a film that is very kind of, you'd expect if you targeted the whole pitch house audience and kind of very cinephile focus, is actually kind of breaking international barriers to the film festivals. So Bait um, is about a fisherman called um, Martin based down in Cornwall and it's his kind of take on what's happening in the gentrification of Cornwall by tourists based in London who have come down and are taking over like any deals that they'll homes and it's what's happening to people who are living in fishing villages and how this is affecting their livelihoods and has accidentally become quite a prominent Brexit film for 2019 and what's unique about this film as well is it's shot on a 16mm camera as well. All the sound editing is dubbed afterwards, it's all in black and white, and it just has this kind of very precarious nature to it. So it's kind of looking at the livelihoods of people still living in the fishing villages, against tourists coming in, it's the clashes happen between them, it's a discussion of kind of like inner politics between small fishing villages. Um, and it's just the narrative is so succinct, so direct, and it tells such a unique story to it. Um, and it had its premiere in the UK at Edinburgh this week, I think. Yeah, it did. It was the, so it was the, the UK premiere, I think. And when you saw it in Berlin, it was the world, correct? Yes, yeah, it was the world premiere in Berlin back, yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. So it, it is a very it's a very strange film to watch. Um, and I'm just Mark. I'll I'll bring you in here just to say, how did you find? Like watching the film to begin with, because I, I'm not going to lie, I did struggle a little bit to kind of find its rhythm at the start. Um, spoiler alert: I did. I think it's a great film in the end, but it, it, it's just so it's something you're really not used to. And I was wondering if you felt that way, or maybe you didn't gel with it, maybe you did. You know. Yeah. So I found it interesting to look at from the first sort of frame because it's. It's made up of two aesthetics, which really I never thought I'd see, you know, close together ever. And those are sort of early British sound documentaries, sort of GPO unit sound documentaries, where some camera crew goes out to a rural area and films people labouring. And then the other aesthetic is that of Soviet montage. There's a kind of Sergei Eisenstein editing scheme going on here where um, a character will clench their fist and it will cut to the fist and you know immediately to juxtapose in your mind what he's looking at and the fist, the idea comes out. There's a dialectical structure here that he's angry. And it's, it's, you know, it's as intuitive as that. Um, there are moments where this is kicked into overdrive um, for me and I find those interesting. Those moments where you know, somebody holds up a pool ball, a white pool ball, and suddenly it cuts to the moon. Mm-hmm. Or somebody um, opens, someone opens a jar full of, or t- I'm sorry, a biscuit box full of money, and the action of pulling it up is matched by the action of him throwing the cage for the lobsters in the water. And there's a lovely push-pull with the imagery. However, um, there is also the feeling I had when one of the scenes where he's walking down the street, the feeling I had was that he was going to start looking into the camera directly and he was going to start singing because I felt this is a music video. This has the same sort of like, adverti- like self-advertising, stylistic self-advertising that pop does. And I thought like, oh no, it's going to lose me here. I'm not going to be able to get that thought in my head. It just about will be back for the rest of it. Although I find some of the more sort of out there stuff, there's a moment where um, all of the faces are sort of lined up in montage with the figurehead that's in the pub, and I felt like, yeah, you're you're stepping on it a wee bit here, I think. But there's enough, I think, to go on. It's interesting that I I, I kind of had the op- the opposite thing in that it it took me a while to get in, and I say a while, I mean like it probably amounts to about ten minutes, right? <laughs> We're not talking half the film. Um, it took me a while to kind of get into it, but then it, it pretty much had me from, from there on in. In particular, with it, without getting into spoilers, because I think this one like is good to go, go in cold, there is a um, there's a point where it starts to kick into gear, really, around... So the main character, uh, Martin, who is a fisherman, and he's kind of, you know, he hasn't got his boat because his brothers commandeered it for other uses. And he starts to get into an altercation with these um, you know, wealthy Londoners who now own his old family home. And it was from that point and that scene and the, the interplay between the characters where I really started to get into it. Because at that point, for me, it started to, I started to settle into the film's rhythm a little. Now, because of the way it's been made with this... Um, you know the the hand developing of the film, and obviously there's all sorts of kind of like you know scratch marks and glitches on the on on the film, which it, it gives it a really really. And, and when I say old school, I'm not talking you know like you know I'm talking like you know the earliest days of cinema type aesthetic. Because of the way it's been made, both in terms of that development and the fact that there was no sound shot with the 
the film at all and it's dubbed over afterwards the editing and the kind of like pauses between dialogue and things has given that little bit more room and it really feels like um, this weird hybrid of modern cinema and silent cinema and it, it, it's a very strange thing to kind of get yourself tuned into to begin with I think once you do it then goes very well and it, it has this basically juxtaposition of an extremely old feeling set of filmmaking techniques with what is essentially a very modern story and basically Elle kind of said it there like you know Brexit parallels and I think quite serendipitously there's um, stuff on the radio which plays into that as well in an early scene so for me it, it worked uh, I'm not I'm not gonna lie I'm not convinced it will for everyone um, I think if you if you can't find that the beat of the film then you're maybe not gonna get into it but once you do I then find the story was quite a compelling one as well now, Elle, you, you actually spoke to Mark Jenk in, in Berlin. Yeah. It was it was fascinating having seen... So we saw the film kind of quite early on in the morning and I ended up chatting with Mark afterwards. So I was given a few hours to kind of sit and think through my own thoughts before talking with him. And it was fascinating understanding his process. So he shot everything within four weeks dead set. But once again, as, he, as you've mentioned, he doesn't use any soundscaping, nothing is done on set at all, it's all just completely shot and then dubbed over afterwards, which obviously takes hours, a lot of foley work is put into it and stuff, and that's where I think once get it yet, if you get into the rhythm of it, is what he wants you to do, is understand the visuals, the complete prominent focus of it, and then the audio kind of comes in afterwards, it's the imagery plays such an important part, and... He's always done this through his style of filmmaking and it's a very unique way to do it and yet it brings in this perfect balance of, it's kind of like almost a like 1950s kind of vintage kind of footage to it, but it's actually so exceptionally clear for the film that it's done on and the stories that are brought into it are very kind of understandable because even if you don't live in those parts of the country, you still understand the narrative, you still understand the points of both kind of characters and stuff. Like when you are a person on holiday going somewhere, you can... You can be a bit obnoxious sometimes or like not as open-minded towards going there compared to the people who are actually living down there. And also because Mark works down in a part of Falmouth University, it's because he's down there all the time. This is his home. These stories are all based on people's actual genuine lives. That's such an important thing to have at a film festival. Is a film that is like, I want to say bracket, like traditionally English. It's a very prominent story that is reflective of, the lives of people that you don't always get to hear about that narrative is kind of you can hear people grumbling about it on social media but that he wanted to bring into it real stories from people who actually lived down at that part of Cornwall and how it's affecting their lives because obviously that part of Cornwall is used for a lot of filming locations anyway so it was really fascinating to hear about his process behind it and that kind of importance of bringing old film work into kind of like the new age and once again he didn't intend this to be kind of like a brexit style film he just wanted to tell a story that ended up having a far more important political narrative um and it's i yeah i i got into it quite quickly i felt because i liked how different it was it felt really refreshing the festival circuits felt slightly stagnant recently in terms of it's been a lot of really depressing films. This kind of brought humour. It's funny. It's really funny as well. There's so much good like sarcasm in it. Yeah, the the the, the lead character in particular, he he gets a he gets a few good lines as does. Um... Yeah, that was Ed, Ed, Edward Rowe. Edward Rowe is brilliant. Edward Rowe and Chloe Ending, who plays Wenner in it, both the two of them together, their their relationship is genius. 
Yeah, it's it's a good, yeah. The performances are great, which is actually even more when you think about the fact that you know the the sound and the the visuals are separate as well, and then being brought together is actually kind of incredible to think the different things that need to come together for that. I think the story is also great. It has a certain I don't want to say universality to it, but I mean you can take it out of its setting pretty well. I think. Um, it does have a UK release date. It is getting a UK release. It's getting a few screens at the BFI as well. I think it's definitely, especially if you're a cinephile, I think it's really worth checking out. Um, and one thing that I have noticed us saying about all the films that we've seen is they're worth checking out. So I think the Edinburgh Film Festival are doing a good job so far, even if there are some which we're not reacting quite as well to. But um, yeah, I would definitely say this is definitely one of the ones where the story is good, the performances are good, and also it's a really, really unique film, which is part of the point of a film festival. And I had the immediate shock of seeing this film and thinking, wow, a British movie with ideas. (laughs) Amazing, how did this happen? Fantastic. Okay, so yeah, we'd encourage people to check that out uh, when it gets what I presume will probably be a limited release, but it's definitely worth looking at. Okay, so next film is a Swedish sci-fi film. Uh, and Yara, which debuted at the Toronto Film Festival last September. Uh, and it's getting a UK release in August. Um, Mark, do you want to give us a little bit of a, a background to this one, or just a brief plot synopsis? Sure. So, um, Earth seems no longer inhabitable. There are large storm clouds um, over over what we can see of Earth. There are these large sort of tendril-like pods taking everybody up to the space station, which is then going to boot them along to the to Mars. Um, uh, where they're going to start a new life on a new planet, hopefully one that's you know livable. Um, and what happens is they start going towards Mars, and there's something of a debris shower in space. It hits their fuel tank, and they are no longer able to steer in the direction they want to. So they are just drifting off into space, unable to change the direction they're in. They estimate at first that it's going to take them just a wee while to get back into their um, their trajectory, but then gradually we 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 become aware that it's not going to happen. And this immediately, because it's weird that this premiered at TIFF at exactly the same time as Claire Denis' High Life. Yeah, I, I, I thought that when I found that out. <laughs> there is a moment where a, a character says something, or there's a scientific, you know fact in the in the film itself which is identical to high life the moment where you're going towards something and it's getting further away the kind of gravitational shift but it's in both films and how strange that is yeah it's it, it, it's funny because actually what the festival this year that people have been talking about the you know the phenomena of this like twin films that come along because obviously like robert the bruce which i was at a screening at just before we came to record this um has come out very shortly after Outlaw King, but I've actually kind of got it from Anyara because when I found out it screened at the very same festival as Claire Denis' High Life, I find that quite quite funny because there are there are a lot of similarities between the films. Um, L, I'm going to come to you just to say, how did you find the the structure of the film? Because we centre on one character who we only know as Mr, who is a a Mima robe as it's called in the film. Basically, she's in charge of this 
basically virtual reality suite, which has a lot of similarities with a lot of um, you know VR kind of memory interface type stuff in sci-fi in general. But we then go on what is quite a long journey with the character. How did you how did you find that story? Did it get across what you were hoping to get out of it? Do you think it achieved what it set out to? I think it's anyone who goes after doing any kind of like sci-fi kind of futuristic style film and having such a detailed and intense plot is ambitious as it is because you have to factor in the reality of actual genuine space time realities of the fact that like they said trying to get to different planets it takes what 30 days in the film and they're then once again the structure is going from an hour to 30 minutes to three weeks to a year and it becomes very disjointed when you're trying to understand the relationships between characters because you know there's so much going on in between there but they pos- they can't feasibly fit it in when the core point of the film is looking at kind of human relationships and kind of cult-like behaviour of people once they're put in an enclosed space with a potentially kind of like dooming reality. And I think they executed the structure pretty well because it did keep you grip- gripped, you kind of stay- you believed what was going on but once again, that will forever, I think, have an impact on you and understanding the kind of the genuine nature of people in there because you kind of expect a bit more to happen sometimes. You expect there to be more like smaller personal fights between people or the real tensions come out because of the way it jumps, you just can't have that in there. But the way they do it, it still works. And even even to those that kind of like last 30 minutes, um, which and because of it's jumped so many years at that point it becomes kind of you're like what what's going to happen next they do grip you to that last minute even if it kind of can be a bit somber but I think in that way it was it did well because that it's a difficult thing to execute it really is so kind of credit to anyone doing that and yeah yeah because it's a very ambitious structure and so it basically it kind of separates it really into kind of chapters you know so after after the uh the initial incident that Mark described where they're basically knocked off course and are completely incapable of um, putting themselves back on. It jumps in kind of exponential fashion, right? So it goes hour one, and I think it's week one, year three, year six, or something like that. And it really kind of increases it. And for me, it, it really added to it because you've kind of got this increasing desperation almost of the people on board. At first, it's kind of, okay, well, this is this is you know, suboptimal. <laughs> um, it's a problem, but we'll fix it. And then after that, they would start to get a little bit more, um, you know, antsy about it. And then once you jump, start jumping forward, you've got the food, like, as Elle mentioned, the formation of cults, and then kind of there's this authoritarian regime that develops. And basically, it, it's almost, it almost works out, in, in my view, kind of allegorical for where they've come from, Earth, right? Which is, which is shown to be pretty much uninhabited. And this Mima device, which our main character is in charge of, people start to rely on it more and more to get a feeling of Earth as it was, to kind of like alleviate their um, desperation and seek a bit of escapism. And basically, they end up overusing it, really. And that's that's another thread that goes through it, and it's kind of it, it's rather depressingly um, relatable to kind of the current situation on Earth, quite frankly. And the thing that I found uh, quite funny about it, and by funny I mean odd rather than hilarious because it's really not hilarious. It's <laughs> it's a very bleak film, 
I don't think it, it doesn't really offer any um, cathartic moment or anything like that. Um, it's, it's not an uplifting film. It is not an uplifting film. The closest it comes to catharsis is probably in the imagery that Nima projects into the yes. people's heads whenever they use that pillow that they put their heads into. And what I found, not, I was about to say it's a bit of a cop-out, but that's not, what, not quite what I mean. Um, this is based on, I was surprised to find out, an epic sci-fi poem. From, oh, yeah, 1950s. With, yeah. By Harry Martinson, which, you know, did not realise that was a genre. I'm happy to dive into that now. <laughs> um, but the, the thing which Mima does is it instills in these people's heads imagery of Earth, which you could safely describe as pastoral. It's all lakes and shimmering yeah. meadows and lovely forests and great verdant, you know, scenery. And, uh, and what happens here is unfortunate, is that it's a misrepresentation of what Earth is. Earth is not this for, you know, most people. It's, you know, you can absolutely find happiness in these green spaces, but people live in cities too. I was, I was trying to figure out why it was going for the imagery which is the domain of lyric poetry, specifically. That felt as though it was an artistic flourish on Martinson and the director's behalf, rather than, like, you know, true to these people's existences. Uh, yeah, no, I, th I think you maybe have a, have a point there. The only, I think maybe what I was trying to get across is a more obvious example of what has been lost. Like right? a dead like a yeah. yeah, because the, obviously, because the, the, the environment of the, the ship itself, and it's probably worth mentioning, because we had it, like, so Anyara is the name of the ship, right? That's, the, um, that's basically what the film, and the poem for that matter, are, are named after. And I think it's maybe in presenting these scenes of nature is trying to get across more obviously what's been lost because the spaceship itself is very much the kind of like, you know, glass and steel yeah, cathedrals that have, have been created and basically are almost kind of a symbol of this current era on Earth, which is when we're more aware of what we're doing to it effectively. Mm -hmm. So I think it was maybe trying to get that across. I take your point in that it might have been good to see a more varied um, and yeah, and what, what, was, what was Earth like at the moment when they were leaving it? Maybe that's an important omission to people, because like, okay, we don't need to know, all we need to know is the thrust towards Mars. What I will say about the Mima part, because that was the most fascinating part for me, is that even though I found the imagery which Mima projects, you know, uh, it works to an extent, but I found it a bit disappointing as to what it didn't reveal about Earth. However, the words which Mima says I found haunting, and I still can, yeah. I'm still thinking about it a little bit. The moment where it essentially self-destructs by reciting a you know dirge for itself. I was like, okay, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's a film with a lot of ideas and a very ambitious way of communicating them. For for me, it pretty much works, and I think a, a lot of that actually is down to. Um, the lead actor, because it largely hinges on her performance. Uh, and basically we are with her in every scene, pretty much every relationship we see, she is a member of it, whether it's a community or it's a pair. And I think she does a fantastic job because she needs to communicate all the themes of the film through a lot of the time, facial expressions are just her reaction to an event. Yeah, or her just general energy. She's a very energetic person. She kind of bounces around. It's almost like she's the kind of group therapist, the group counsellor for a while. As well as being, like, you know, the, the ship's major intellectual too, because she's teaching people how to be the next um, engineers of the ship later on. So, yeah, the, the film, I think we'll leave it there for Anya. I think we would all heartily recommend it. Completely. It 
it's it's a very it's a very refreshing take on the sci-fi and it's like brutally realistic as well which i think is quite essential and once again yeah like you said it's very kind of philosophical in reflecting kind of current age like you won't look at instagram the same way again or you'll realize what you're caught up in but would i would i would really recommend seeing it i think it's a good film to watch yeah, and I tell you, fortunately, everybody will get a chance to see it. It does have a UK release date. It is getting released on, I think, August 30th, I believe, is the date it comes out. So it's definitely worth checking out, especially if you were a fan of Claire Denis' High Life. I think it's dealing with some similar themes, but just in a very a very different way. So, absolutely, that's Anne Yara. Thank you again for listening, and to all at the Take One magazine for reviewing the films. This episode was produced by me, which is why some parts sound like they're being broadcast from a cave. But we'll be back in July at our regular slot at EHFM with the usual Cinetopia team. But if you want to read more in the meantime, go to Cinetopia Hub or Take One Cinema on Twitter, or the website at cinetopiashow.com or takeonecinema.net. See you there.